0: to the Solid Responder podcast, where we share stories from first responders and talk about the past, the present, and the future in disaster response. Solid Responder highlights key issues in emergency response, exploring, engaging, and educating the emergency response community with featured guests from diverse all-hazard emergency response disciplines. Listen in as leading experts in the field tell their personal stories of dramatic and dangerous moments the lessons that they learned, and how their skills and leadership were put to the test. Listen in as we talk about taking good medicine to bad places. I'm your host, Joe Hernandez, and the Solid Responder Podcast, squared away, right away. First
1: podcast, uh, welcome to Solid Responder. This is my guest, Michael Lay. He is uh, not only uh, a first responder and an incredible responder, and uh, he'll tell you a little bit about his background, but he's also a good friend. Um, I met him just shortly after the events, the attacks on our country, uh, teaching up there in Maryland, being uh, a guest at his facility and, and part of his uh, instructor cadre way, way back then and uh, formed a good bond and heard some good stories and uh, proud to still see him actively responding. Uh, he's uh, still presently uh, working every day uh, or, as we say, every third day on shift uh, as a battalion chief and uh, also with Maryland Task force One. So I'll let him uh, introduce himself, get about a couple minutes on it, and uh, let everybody understand who Mike uh, Michael Lay is. I'm glad to be here. Um, definitely a first for me too.
2: But uh, yeah, so I'm a charter member of Maryland One when we were first starting the system. And before that, it was just LA and Miami, if I remember right, that had like the OFDA things. So they were going out internationally. Um, and then there was the earthquake, I guess, in California that dropped the freeway. And I can't remember the name of that one, but. That was like a big impetus for the system going up. And we had uh, Tom Carr works for our department at the time and was a captain. And he was kind of a visionary with the whole concept and went out like on his own dime to Armenia. There was a huge earthquake out there, like 89-ish or so. And he really saw the need for coming up with the whole national system for us. So when we in Maryland did the system in 91, 90 or 91, I guess it was 90. Started putting it together with just a few stations that worked around where he Was and then we just kind of as we went, we went from the typical like technical rescue stuff, doing um, trench rescues and that sort of thing. That that was even that was still in its like its infancy, like doing that kind of thing. And we actually had the only trench rescue team for like the whole DC area, so we were going all over the place around Maryland doing those. But along with that, we started to get into the confined space medicine with that. And there were a couple guys, guys, um, Joe Barbera, who was in Pennsylvania, did all this uh, mine rescue. That was like their thing. So they were into this long term uh, confined space medicine. So we had him come down and kind of give us some pointers. And for a little while, we were integrated with mine rescue, which we were all a little baffled with because we were a very urban kind of <laughs> area trying to figure out how to do mine rescue. But eventually... Uh, Um, You know, Hurricane Floyd, I think, not Floyd, Andrew, hit Florida in 92. That was our first mission. And we've been a very heavily deployed uh, team ever since. Obviously, Oklahoma, and then the 9-11 events and Katrina and a whole bunch in between of um, hurricanes and that sort of thing. So my last count, I was about 25 uh, deployments uh, federally. And um, I've been a paramedic now for 30 Two years 33 years um battalion chief now all with Montgomery County Maryland and uh yeah still hanging in I was a team manager medical team manager for the last 21 years <laughs> so I just stepped back to being a specialist in the last couple of months just to give some more people a chance and
1: to start training and turn them over but that's about where I'm at and that's and that's perfect that's that's about where everybody ends their career instead of saying goodbye it's uh glad to hear that you're doing the same thing and passing that torch along to those young guys that haven't had the opportunity to, to respond to uh, disasters not just as large as you have but it's also as many and the experience that goes along with it and all the other uh, things importantly as you mentioned uh, the beginnings uh coming down from the mining uh industry is, is it was strange very strange to hear the talk uh, but uh, it made sense after um, it all came together and you uh you brought up Carr, car was, uh, as you said a, one of the grandfathers of usar as we call them and I remember and maybe we'll talk about this one day because i really think it's important and it really has struck a chord with me lately as i remember his wife started a movement on family support and Mm -hmm. uh, getting rid of some of the trauma uh, excess that the those that are left behind uh not deployable and uh, the spouses and i thought what she was doing and he was doing and your task force was doing was spot on yeah and that actually is still um
2: alive today alive and well the um yeah. Mm-hmm generally it's been some of the senior members, um, spouses that have been keeping up with it, but the last mission to Ida, they just got back a few days ago, and the family support network was very much in it. Um, they sent brief- So every time we go on a mission, all of the um, family, like you you put in whatever sp- um, be it spouse, significant other, whatever, um, they get all the contact information. They get either a call down or emails every single day on how the task force is doing um, so that nobody's left in the dark hopefully. So, you know, when you do go someplace, as you know, there's places where you do missions and there's no cell phone service, there's no anything. Um, We tried a few times just because people were getting mixed information. (laughs) Having everybody turn in cell phones at deployment, and that didn't go over very well. But but there is a daily briefing that goes for that, as well as, um, you know, the more major things like, you know, and again, the Pentagon, for instance, they did a, uh, like mental health briefing for all the families before we ever got back and just told them about some of the things that we might be encountering and kind of gave them a heads up on, um, PTSD symptoms and that kind of thing that they would be aware of just in case you know their loved ones came back you know what they saw is different um, so so yeah it's been really good so it's Ann Anne is um, Tom's wife Ann Carr and she was was very very um, instrumental in getting all that off the ground
1: and Tom was very supportive of it and uh, it kind of I believe has been uh, not carried on to the different task forces possibly as it should among the other 2018 2017 and uh, maybe it's something we'll visit later on and, uh, just seeing the, uh, the amount of uh, increased suicides and increased, uh, divorces within the, uh, the first responder community has, uh, has grown tremendously. And, uh, the little bit that Ann and Tom were doing, um, probably went a long way within your department, within your agency, your task force probably didn't show. It would be really neat, uh, or not so neat, you know, how it goes to see the, the difference, um, of the effects afterwards. Um, of your deployment versus another task force's deployment and what they suffered, i.e. after the Oklahoma City bombing, seeing the Oklahoma City Fire Department divorce rate reaching up to 800% um, astronomical numbers, which are just uh, unheard of. And uh, I remember seeing the Montgomery County little hotel that was built out of woods sitting in front of it. The scene for a break and I was like, boy, those were the early days. We took breaks right in front of the disaster. And so you sat there, but you stared at or you smelt or you listened to all the same things. And that brings me to the surfside collapse, which just happened three months ago. And here we are from 1995 to 2021 and the base of operations were still placed so close to the event that they had to be moved because they were we're all within sight, smell, and sound of the of the disaster. And so, are we just doing uh, a wrecking ball and not taking care of things as uh, as Tom and, uh, and Ann Carr tried to do, and, and Maryland Task Force One tried to do, along with the uh, the medical specialists and the uh, the medical team from you guys? Bring us right back to to what I'm looking at in your in your backdrop. Well, you know, as we get close to this disaster anniversary, what do we call it? Uh, the attacks of September the 11th. So many people, I think, slip up. And say, the World Trade Center attacks and forget about our other two significant events. However significant they are to the nation and to the world, they are very significant to the loved ones and to the individuals that were affected, uh, even in Statesville. And so talk to me about uh, that day when uh, you got the call. Uh, Being so close, I mean, you work for Montgomery County Fire Rescue Services. You are across the river from this incredible military Pentagon that uh, is a structure we've was never uh, going to have hands laid on.
2: Yeah, so um, DC is basically our back door, and for many years, even before this, uh, we trained with um, MDW, which is the Military District of Washington, and they are they have their own smaller TRT um, as well, and we do an annual. Um, we have them for the last few years. We do an annual training with them because they have turnover, as the military does every few years and stuff. So we do it at a, um, military site with a huge, um, like basically their whole thing is presidential rescue and that sort of thing. And, um, if they were an attack similar to this on either the White House or the, um, Capitol, we were assigned as their backup and the primary lead for, for inside DC. So the plane going down, um, flight 93 going down kind of precluded that and saved us from having to do that because otherwise we were on deck for the White House or the Capitol or wherever it hit. Um, Virginia 1, which is Fairfax, this, that's the Pentagon's basically their back door, um, as is Arlington, which has a TRT. So Arlington County is a small county. Um, righty, the borders. Um, so DC basically is all on the Maryland side of the river and then Arlington is just the south side, what would look like the last, the bottom quarter of it. And that's essentially where the Pentagon is. So they were right on top of it immediately, as was Fairfax. Um, And we got the call. We initially were dispatched for New York. Um, We were dispatched to the first bombing, you know, the one several years before that. Uh, We were sent to that and then uh, obviously not used because it wound up not being, you know, what it was. But um, this time around we were getting prepped for New York and then the Pentagon got hit. So it was a very fast, um, obviously no notice event. So um, ironically, <laughs> the way we were doing our pharmacy, we did not have, unlike a lot of other teams, like we don't have hospital people. We don't have um, hospital based CMS. Everything's fire based through, through our department. So we didn't really have a standalone pharmaceutical cache, or we kind of did, but it was out of date, and we were in the middle of trying to cycle it through. So long story short, it was in my basement at home, and I was at my fire station. tapping things off, I had run over, the engine had run over my cell phone the night before. Coming back from Cox, I left it in my shoes. <laughs> So, my morning consisted of waking up at the station, seeing the attacks on television, knowing we were going to go to New York, not even seeing the Pentagon thing, knowing my phone was smashed flat, and all the medications I needed were in my basement 30 miles away. So... (laughs) You know, it was run across the street in a mob. I don't know why everybody was panicking in an in a, um, AT&T store, but basically threw down my phone, told them to give me whatever you got, activate it whenever it does. And I hauled ass up the street, up the highway, along with everybody that was running away from Washington. Um, and it was like, it was like kind of total panic, but at 80 miles an hour, which it never is. And I just kept going. So grabbed everything, raced back down, and we were just dealt with a bunch of out-of-date stuff for that piece of it. Um, but I was on the initial recon team that went in. Um, so there's about 15 of us that went in. And uh, so part of the building was still on fire. The so what you see in the picture is with the collapse in the middle, hadn't collapsed yet. So... It was, um, it's very deceiving when you see pictures because the plane went through um, the Pentagon and I wish I had my pictures for you. So the um, Pentagon's in five rings. And it goes out to the E ring, which is the outermost. And that A is A and B are in the center. And there's actually like a road, service sort of road that goes around between the B and C rings. So the plane went through the three outermost ones. And it went through the ones that they had just renovated post Oklahoma. So all the windows were blast proof. So you couldn't, as you were searching, you couldn't open windows for ventilation. You couldn't get any air. Um, we were inside for probably about two hours. Um, um, without breathing apparatus um I'll say to this day, probably one of the dumbest things I've done ever, um, as far as personal safety goes, but we really, it it went from areas of very clear areas to, once you got into that, it was about the size of a football field of just destruction, you know, things that had been on fire, things that were out, there had been an initial, somebody had gone through and put like um, flags in the debris um, just for part of their initial searches, but we we doing all the rest of it, and yeah, was very, um, I guess it's very deceiving for what you see from the pictures, and that led to a lot of, I guess, conspiracy kind of things, and again, we were set up dead in front of the building, um, us in Fairfax, so, um, pretty early on, they were setting up the teams at a nearby hotel, but being medical, being there, like we went up being the medical, not just for, not just for USAR, but, uh, we were the medical team for all the other federal agencies that were out there. So there is, you know, the F- FBI and DOD's teams, where well, um, um, there is the Defense Intelligence Agency and there really is an OSI, like from, $6 million man that exists. Um, so everybody's out there in all their jackets and stuff, but they would get hurt. They'd have eye injuries, they'd have whatever else. And like, we had to be there, you know, for them. And we treated a lot of people from other agencies as it was too. Um, and the other, I don't know, I don't know how things went in New York or other sites, but, you know, the whole system is set up to be on 24 hour operations. So you have your two medics and a doc and they're going to be on a 12 hour shift and the other one's going to be on a 12 hour shift. <laughs> Only it's not in reality how we function a lot. We're usually in just 12s. So there is some redundancy with that, which was okay. Um, because we were able to leave one team in our boo, which was right dead centered. And Fairfax, our two tents were literally side by side, like lengthwise, but they had nights and we had days. So you never really got any rest. We stayed the whole time in the tents and um, we did trade off our teams though. So nobody was inside, inside looking at what we were looking at every single day. So we alternated. So one team would stay out for one day and the other team would go in and be like um, almost like you're um, like you're two out but we weren't really we were like in the thick of everything too but you were just they're helping out. So we had rapid response medics and then the, um, NMRT, which is the um, national medical response team. They had the decon portion coming out from the hot zone. So they would do, and they were ready. We actually had victims. They would have taken the victims, decon them and everything there, treated them out of the hot zone and then turn them over to the us. So. so we had that funnel kind of going, you know, but unfortunately
1: there were no victims to be saved. Just like, just like uh, World Trade Center. Yeah. Such a tragic event, such a large amount of uh, fuel, such a massive disaster. Um, it would have been an incredible miracle for anyone to have survived uh, either one of those two events, knowing what uh, what happened. And um, the picture that you showed me without the collapse in there, uh, it lasted uh, not too long from my understanding, I guess, Something in, in the neighborhood about two hours before it all collapsed and went down. So, um, and you were talking about the, uh, the, the controversies and, of course, controversies in the World Trade Center. You still hear to oh, this yeah. day and controversies on your end. And and you speak to to individuals, solid responders like yourself, um, who were there and said, "Let me tell you this. You know, we we've seen the nose landing gear. We found it buried into a wall. Um, everything that we've seen during this time. This is not something that somebody." Created out of their own uh, fruition and um, and just decided that they were going to make a, an event with all of our.
2: Yeah, there were, I mean, whole sides of, I mean, I wouldn't say whole, you know, but 10 feet worth of the side of an airplane. There was luggage, there was landing gear, there was all of that, you know. <laughs> So yeah, I, you know, for the first couple of years, I used to try to engage with people like that. And mm-hmm. like, I was like, you can't, like, it doesn't matter which tell them or anything. No. Um, I did. So there were still people who, you know, despite, and I'm sure um, New York same way, there's still people that you just never were able to identify remains with. So there is a um, really, really nice memorial just by coincidence where it is, but it's on the flight path right across the street. And Arlington Cemetery. Um, and it's just kind of, it's, you know, it's not big and it's not tall or anything, but it's this nice little um, monument there. And it just has the names of um, the, the ones they couldn't identify. And they're in there, but they were able to exclude um, any hijackers. So there's no hijackers in there, um, but it's the ones that they couldn't quite um, intern with whomever,
1: um, including uh, a couple kids. So, yeah. That's uh, 189, folks. Um, I don't know why we always count uh, the terrorists that were in there, 19 terrorists that uh, were involved in the uh, 2,977 victims. That's where I stop. I don't go above 2,977 because I think we should count the 19. Uh, that were involved in the three hijackings uh four hijackings that destroyed our country to a certain degree. And so... Those are all murderers. We don't count them with (laughs) any other thing like that. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I had the the honor and the privilege. Uh, My son served uh, in the U.S. Army as commander of troops at the Old Guard. Uh, Happened to be POTUS's platoon leader for a period of time. And I asked him to please take me up and show me uh, the memorial that was set up for the Pentagon. And uh, it was shaky. It it brought tears to my eyes. was glad to see that uh, uh, the military folks and their families uh, that were there uh, being honored, uh, recognized, and uh, a lot being said, uh, sometimes we forget about that one particular disaster, and it is just as large and even more significant if we look at it as an attack on this country than the World Trade Center themselves, Uh, commercial buildings, uh, yet the loss of life being so large and the loss of lives of solid responders, first responders going, into the building when everybody was running out. Uh, I guess that's why all that attention was brought there, but you guys were doing the same thing. You were running in that building. You were staying in there without changes of SCBA because we all know that you mentioned to us, Michael, that you were in there for over two hours, and we know that SCBAs don't last two hours. We know we're lucky to get 30 minutes out of a bottle, and they talked about 60-minute bottles and 90-minute bottles. Ha <laughs> ha. But when you're carrying in all the equipment and walking from point A to point B into those and going, penetrating the levels as you said you were doing from the interior, from the exterior to the interior um, and then choosing once you ran out of air was I coming out, was I having to go through decon and were they going to give me the opportunity to come back in and if they didn't, uh, sir sir, you just uh, said what you chose to do and that was to try and find victims that were still alive and needed to be rescued and that's, that's that's why you're a hero and that's why there are people that, uh, that, uh, are blessed because folks are willing to run into those situations and not think so much about themselves at that moment in time, but think about the others because it could be their family members and they know it's somebody else's family member. And, uh, hats off to you, Mike, for doing that and, uh, and what you went through and everybody else. Talk a little bit about the, uh, the, uh, the afterwards. Uh, I know that, uh, you guys are going through a little bit of health effects, uh, whether it was, uh, the ball wasn't, uh, uh, rolled the right way? Whether uh, the structure wasn't set up for there to be a foundation and a health uh, registry for you all? Um, uh, how are you feeling? How are the medications affecting you, yourself, and those around you?
2: So, um, and I'll clarify: we never even did a CBA at all. So we got to the door to go in, and the um, <laughs> the meter for CO was pegged over six hundred, and we were like, yeah, um, yeah, and it was like six hundred outside, it wasn't inside. Oh. So we basically just made the decision to turn it off and went in. And then it was all solo searches. And I had remembered, you know, when they do like greatest structure kind of things on TV, there's this specials, they had done one on the building like within a few weeks of that. And I remembered like, Oh God, I'm going to be lost. And it was all um, cubicles. And I didn't know if anybody was going to be hiding in there. So it was a race trying to get through there. It was a race with like all the hot air Um, where you would take a breath at the floor, stand up, hold your breath and go through as many cubicles as you could to try to search all of that and hope you were in the same direction as everybody else on your team and just kept doing that over and over. And a few times I tried breaking windows, it would just bounce off because it was all the ballistic stuff. So that um, left me with headaches, for weeks, um, you know, we didn't do really respiratory protection. They were back and forth on tyvax and stuff, which I think we didn't really need anyway. But respiratory stuff, um, I came out of there um, within weeks having to take steroids for breathing and, you know, been on them for the next 20 years. So, um generally yeah that's that's where mine has been it's primarily um pulmonary effects we did get like you know I tried signing up for like under the Zadroga Act and that kind of thing, but we really did get kind of brushed aside. Um, everything, everything when you look at like the registry to sign up for any of that, it's all trade center stuff. And when you try to push in there, like no, I was involved at this, and you know even even doing the initial um, like exposure reporting through FEMA and everything for us it didn't really ever get recognized so um I just assume (laughs) there's a lot a lot of brothers and sisters in New York that are a lot sicker and you know have died from those kind of things so we had a limited time in it you know we weren't up there for months doing like that you know we were we were, you know, ten days at least for our team, but um, not just physically, but mentally, it definitely had a lot of scars too. too. I and mean, we talked about that a little bit up top, but um, yeah, really, we were a team going into it with with some experience. You know, I don't know what I don't know what experience prepares you for that because it was
1: it, it was a lot. If um, you, you, you take our everyday calls, our MCIs, our traffic accidents, and and what do you what do you you do it 500 fold, you know, a thousand fold of, of, of the worst, worst call you've ever had in your 30 plus year career. And you, you drive up to this thing and you look at it. Nothing gets you ready for it.
2: Yeah. You know, and then we had some problems with, with law enforcement because the DC office who we normally would work with and we, you know, we integrate with, there's, I want to say it's close to 20 something law enforcement agencies just in the capital region, Between federal ones and local ones and everything. And we have a good working relationship with FBI, but they were in New York. Like DC went to New York and we wound up with uh, Atlanta and Pittsburgh. And they were trading days, literally. So we would get instructions on evidence collection one day and it'd be totally different the next day. And a lot of that involved recoveries. And that really could play with your head too. So it just, there was a lot of levels to that. So, you know, um, like I said, primarily, you know, primarily respiratory stuff. And for those of us that got in there, Sure. first on um you know for sure but you know nothing like the other
1: guys at least well they've been keeping numbers of the other guys they haven't really been keeping numbers on the four task forces that responded especially they, the two task forces that were there initially as fdny members and as nypd members and, and port authority members uh those local agencies uh were first on scene and we know that uh, it doesn't take two hours to uh, toxify and, and poison our systems. Uh, it could take two minutes depending on what's burning inside there. And we know that being a military facility, the way that it was, along with an aircraft that went into it, that you can mix a pool of however many chemicals you want and you probably have them all and what you guys have not only absorbed through your respiratory system, but also through your skin, et cetera. And uh, it's shameful. Um, I feel as a, as a youth sergeant, Member and and being in the health registry for the World Trade Center. um, I feel shameful in that that wasn't shared with our brothers and sisters who responded to the Pentagon attacks. Um, it, it, it it brings shame, uh, it brings sadness and um, uh, hopefully somehow that uh, this could be brought up, recirculated and, and reinvigorated to uh, to do something about it. Uh, not just to lay back on the agencies or the departments of course you're still going to be taken care of to some degree but what about the extra expenses that aren't there and aren't covered and uh, that the agency sees different than maybe a, a complete uh, registry has been formed by the World Trade Center. And um, Hats off off for, for doing that again and, and uh, from my end is, is all we can say is I'm sorry that they didn't carry that on with you and uh, here we respond with a national response system and we do fall under the umbrella of FEMA and ironically here two years later we, we, we now fall under uh, the Department of Homeland Security both of us being founding members uh, and no one ever decided to create an umbrella of a policy for protection but let alone went back to the supporting or the sponsoring aid agencies who were under the 2018 right uh, maybe, maybe that'll change maybe that uh, that'll change if some some light gets shed on it but it, it's interesting that you said that uh, you, you brought up a point that you you guys were headed north uh, the cops were headed north the protection security service and in 40 minutes the whole world changed on their end uh, you know as the second plane struck the the, the second tower the, the world now knows that we're under an attack All the planes are being called back to their original bases or to land at the closest facility. (coughs) Excuse me. And within minutes, the one circling downtown BC decides to crash into the Pentagon.
2: Yeah. And then we had our own scare while we were down there with the initial, the first, I guess it was a few hours into the first day when someone from the cabinet decided they wanted to fly back directly into like um, Reagan National, which it's like a minute. (laughs) It's not even a whole minute off the flight path to come right back into, you know, the Pentagon or or the White House. So uh, that was quite the mad scramble. I don't know. I don't know what things were like in New York as far as air cover, but it was a little different looking at stuff later on because we had a lot of military like they had fences up and you couldn't go about 15 feet without on um, from the perimeter you couldn't go 15 feet without encountering somebody with a submachine gun and if you didn't have id the right id yeah. you couldn't leave and go to a on out in the park and come back without having to flash it or you were on the ground you know at at some point. And we had F-16 circling us the entire time. So which is a good it was a good feeling, having fighter jets flying around, you know. Yeah.
1: I I don't know if they had that in New York, but it was No, no. must have felt (laughs) like American (laughs) Eagles, bald eagles flying over the top, you know. Yeah. No, we uh, at one point in time, we did have the uh, the helicopters go up, uh, law enforcement helicopters. And uh, they were eerie just because you didn't you saw them for one second uh, and then you didn't see them the next. And I'm a flatlander born and raised, you know, in, in Florida. So seeing those tall buildings uh, was uh, different. And so just hearing the helicopters when we had not heard any type of aviation in the air was uh, was a puckering factor. So that's uh, that's neat. That's uh, that's cool. It's an eerie sound, but at the same time, it's a, it's a securing sound knowing that, uh, that those uh, folks were up there protecting the skies and making sure everything, uh, was, was okay. And uh, it sounds silly, but it really was like that, that like
2: warm blanket over you while you were working because you just, you knew
1: someone had your back and you could focus yes. on what you were doing. And you mentioned the security. Uh, we had security issues there as well. Um, it took about two days before they threw fences up, keep all the public out, even though they had really good intent. They, they're hard were there trying to give everybody coffee and food but they couldn't be near the site and uh, then started the rumors of missing uh, uniform uh, missing uh, telephone company fans different little things that made law enforcement really take note and decide that they needed to lock things down and we went to a color system up there along with your ids mm-hmm. to make sure that if ids were duplicated that the colors were able to change things for them yeah. and uh it was it was different we one day, we even went outside of the fence, and uh, I'm surprised we did. We wanted some pizza. So we went outside the fence, and it wasn't good trying to come back in. So as you say, don't always leave and expect to come in the same door that you go out, uh, especially when there's some security going on. And it's lessons that we learned. I mean, the first event that you guys rolled out on to the Oklahoma City bombing, no one really had cell phones. Pictures were taken with the old instamatic and right. reel it up and click click and, and those boogers were all taken from us, um, confiscated because it was an active crime scene at the Oklahoma City bombing. And I remember the phone banks that were brought out for big bricks that were brought out so that you can call home. But we had cell phone in two thousand and one. Um we had we were they were with us. And I know that on our pile, and I'm sure it was probably the same thing in your end. Um, we wanted pictures to be able to do a lot of teaching later on as you are not less not uh, 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 lessons learned in case history, because those are always great, not just stories told about it. However, we found uh, uh, an obstacle because the members that we were finding of FDNY, particularly Rescue 2 members, the last thing you wanted to do was take a camera and take a picture of anything that was destructive. And a lot of times when you take a camera out, if you're not taking a picture of a particular structure or Proof, evidence uh, of something you can't get out of, the body part, etc. The last thing you want to ever see anyone do is smile in a picture when you're at these destructions, as you've seen uh, a story of uh, seeing a law enforcement officer having uh, a picture taken with the backdrop of one of the disasters. And it didn't take long before somebody physically uh, assaulted them. Uh, just on the phone oh, I'm, I'm sure. I'll take a You guys were uh, joined later on by Tennessee task force one, Greg Wayman and the boys. And uh, uh, that we were, was- <laughs> yeah. Um, so they worked days with
2: us and we were actually able to, um, split the pile so they wound up working we had the left side of the of the um, impact zone and they had the right so parts of it were kind of narrow together and then we were kind of branching out um, several hundred feet each direction we probably had the bulk of stuff because like the um, I remember the flight boxes and stuff were on our side. Um, a lot of the Joint Chiefs offices and stuff were in our area. But it definitely worked out geographically. And it wasn't a huge um, distance, but there was a tremendous amount of debris um, between the two. So that worked out pretty well having them over there. And then eventually um, New Mexico was our relief. So Tennessee, Tennessee got there pretty fast, actually. Um, but it was probably their first, I want say that was their first actual deployment and you know it it definitely just um again just the stress of that was kind of apparent to everybody understandably like i'm not knocking them at all it's just for for a task force getting thrown into that you know and trying to learn everything on like what really is one of the biggest events that we would ever face you know all at one time but they did good you know and now they're pretty they're pretty actively deployed all the time and you know it's a hell of a, a hell of a first call though um,
1: Get uh, baptized by fire, as they, as they would say. Learning on, oh, on the on the on the fly.
2: Oh, good lord! So one of their guys um, got hit by a motorcycle cop when they first <laughs> they first got there. They stopped the bus under an overpass, and a couple guys hopped out to take pictures. And um, he stepped right off their bus and got um, plowed into by a um, by a um, motorcycle cop that took him out. But. <laughs> <laughs> that's like yeah. a pole that's like
1: a person coming out to stop the fire truck or the rescue truck going through <laughs> thinking, oh they'll stop. Yeah, sorry. Right, Holy right. smokes. But you guys did a lot of shoring uh for the uh the, the rescue boys out there. Um yes. they, they did incredible amounts of, of shoring. The amount of tractor trailers, uh these aren't four by four timbers that they were shoring up with. You guys were using six by sixes. Yes. Um, I saw some numbers of you know, over 50 box cribbings that were up to 15 feet tall and, uh, and, and T shores and raker shores and vertical shores that were built across it. Um, and it's funny, you see a picture and you see a pretty gold paratech and uh, what do you carry, you know, a half a dozen or a dozen on, on there? <laughs> it's going to look like uh, small little Legos on a giant billboard. You guys went through some serious amount of lumber. Those guys were. Yes.
2: So those guys, um, you know, and it was, it was a little bit more complicated because you're shoring, we had the initial blueprints. So we had, we had access to, and one of our structural engineers was working by sheer coincidence was working on the renovation project at the Pentagon. Um, we had access to the blueprints, of the building from that area um, from the company. So we were able to look at all the columns and where they should be uh, because a lot of them were gone. Um, so you had not only the impact area, but you had a wide, Wide area, so it wasn't just straights. It actually went diagonally. Um, you a really, really large area of columns that were all just missing with, you know, three stories on top of that. So, you know, shoring outside in where the columns were and like way over engineered it. We had engineers later that came in and they were just like, Oh my God. Um, because if you look at pictures later, when you see the shores like at the side of the building, you know, which is probably what you're talking about, um, that's how we did through the entire inside. And then some of them were like that and then encased in plywood too, just to, you know, make them even more solid. But, you know, the hardest part was coordinating that with evidence recovery and victim recovery in those areas, too, because you'd clear all that out. Plus, with the firefighting efforts, there was like, you know, feet worth of water. But, you know, what helped us having the old guard guys, because you tell a bunch of, you know, young army kids, like, move this pile to this pile, and yeah. okay... <laughs> <laughs> At one point, and we, had to stop, we had to stop them because it was like, no, 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 no. no we don't need all 200. But they would just pick one up, keep on walking. Um, what a yeah. great
1: asset. What a great asset to have.
2: Yeah, they were fantastic. <laughs> but you had to watch them, too. So it's another example of having to you know, integrate different teams and stuff. So we had one of them um, going to Rabdo because, you know, they don't take breaks. They don't anything. But, you know, we also um, had the advantage of having military um, clergy on site. So they had services and stuff like, you know, intent and, and that whole thing. So okay, okay. I think it's a little different than what you would come across with most things right now, because it was so just so many agencies um, and working really, really well together and integrating
1: well. So. It's interesting you say that. Uh, I, I felt that same way. Uh, somebody asked me to do a, an interview in a local paper about uh, Ground Zero, and I found myself focusing on what's kind of missing today, and that's unity in, in people. And unfortunately, why did it take such a large disaster to bring people together? It didn't matter the color, race, religion, whether we had hair, whether we don't anymore, you know, whether it's gray or whether it's black. It didn't matter. Everybody came together because we needed to, because there was... Was something that had happened to us, and we all needed—some of us needed help—and and needed a lot of help. And uh, I don't want to see us have to go through another massive uh, disaster to see that uh, that type of weeping in the nation and, and response to, to doing something good um, it took an attack, uh, four attacks basically, um, one that was stopped, even though it was an attack. Uh, we don't know where that plane was headed. Uh, I understand that you guys were cleared out at a certain time, uh, suspended because that uh, fourth plane was. Possibly headed into the DC area as well. Mm-hmm. Is that correct. Yep.
2: So that wasn't that wasn't the Shanksville one. That was another. That was the other whatever it was military or um, presidential kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. So everything was very very fluid at least down here because it was like we're going north, we're going here, you know, and we were getting news just as fast that there were still planes missing. Um and then you know where do you go do you go into do you just go directly into the hot zone which is a target by itself you know um certainly the guys in the first tower you know they may not have known what was happening but by the time that you're going into the second one you know what's going on and you still have to go you know Absolutely. in our case it was like you still got to go into this thing and you hope you hope the jets flying around if they are you hope there's going to be jets flying around yeah you know to do that yeah. um but you still can't stop i mean you still have to go in and do what you're going to do. Absolutely. You know, yeah. and count, count on the other people to do their part.
1: <laughs> sure. And like we always do in a regular fire, you're going in and uh, whether you're on suppression on a hose mouth or doing a search and rescue, you're hoping that the next arriving units is shutting off the power <laughs> get rid <Right>. of the electricity <laughs> and the gas force. We're trying to save lives or put the fire out, so please uh, back us up. And that's uh, that's what we've learned to do. My 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 wife, uh, I'm sure as yours, uh, and even our kids are pretty good on uh, clear right uh, as we're <laughs> going to make a left hand turn. And, and people say, well, "What are you talking about?" That's my wife's my my co partner. She's she's over there making sure my right side is clear, and I can make a left hand turn. And I don't even have to look right. I can totally trust her. And uh, that's really what it was all about. And uh, looks like that's what you guys. Focused on, and we tried to get out of Florida as all the other teams trying to come across the country to respond to their respective areas. Ironically, only four teams, eventually a fifth team out of the twenty-eight, went to uh, the Pentagon. I think it was New Mexico's first event too, and they kind of went there to clean up afterwards, as you mentioned. And the rest of them all went up to uh, the, the Trade Center and then rotated a second shift through the, the Trade Center and really got the uh, the teams a lot of experience. Uh, with building collapses and, uh, and, and the et cetera. But, uh. Some of the reports are are just astonishing because you you prepare, as you said, we prepare for, i.e., the Oklahoma City bombing teams getting there several days later, and they're not being an active fire, but the remnants of what that fire was like and hats change. You got thrown a disaster right in your own backyard. You had to deal with the fires just like you would on a fire department, just like you had to do on a regular call and then switch hats and go into a search and rescue mode for days on end. And so we go from peaking PTSD to complex PTSD where we don't really have a chance to undo or unwind but it's just day after day after day and hour after hour eventually they do take its toll but uh it's friends like you that uh that, that are good and and I'm sure that uh you've surrounded yourself with a bunch and uh that task force has come a long way I I I, I really had a great time coming out there in 2000 and I believe that was 2003 uh yeah. got to meet a really really good friend uh, that uh we still share our friendship with today, which is Benny Johnson from FDNY, and yep. uh, who got to, to relax and, and retire himself and, uh, and come out of there. And the irony of that was uh, two years later, Vinny getting stuck in a up in a confined space in a pipe at your facility at Montgomery County, not because he physically got caught, but because emotionally he shut down. Yeah. And you went in, you went in one end, and I went in the other end, and we were determined to get Vinny out one way or the. Other, he was going to come out of that pile with one of us, but we were going to walk him out, or basically crawl him out, and and it yeah. worked. It worked. And uh, brother, hats off because uh, you know we we got him out, and uh, and to this day he's uh, a flourishing family man with uh, two beautiful daughters, and, and and is enjoying retirement. So little things like that, we don't know uh, how they come back to uh, to haunt you. And he kind of froze during that uh, session up there. But.
2: Yeah, not the only one. So I think we all have our moments like that but uh absolutely I'm going over big bridges <laughs> yeah you know what and for me it's um, movie theaters when they go dark because that like yeah. that whole building was was like black yeah. and you know it's just his first 30 seconds or so but to this day yeah. you know and then you know you do the hyper vigilance piece of that and then we of course had the sniper here you know the following year running around mm-hmm. shooting everybody
1: yeah. so, in the movie theater it just is like
2: yeah, that, was <laughs> the, that was the guy that was just killing everybody like you know you yeah. go to the you go to the Home Depot when you get shot and killed um yeah that was just a weird thing too that was all over Montgomery County so so it was really hard just for the first couple of years after to like slow yourself down at all you know and you were constantly waiting for the next the next one of these yeah. So, you know, you're driving around 10 days worth of gear and waiting like, you know, every family <laughs> vacation, you're calling, you know, the next guy, hey, you
1: know, I'm going to be an hour away. So it's just, it was crazy. So I'm glad to be where I'm at now. on like a pseudo, pseudo retired
2: piece of that. And the young, the young guys can cope with that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they've got,
1: and they've got a lot to learn from you, a lot to pick up, which is great. And uh, the stability and then just see, seeing the stability in your life too, as well, has a lot to do with it. Uh, uh, we all have the ups and downs not saying that we run that track always uh, as I say I'm, I'm always navigating a storm some waves are bigger than others but uh, still navigating and still keeping my feet up underneath me I know that you are too and uh, that's the biggest part about, you know just being able to talk about the event being there being first in <clears throat> being able to take time out to talk to uh, to me and to, to take it out to the rest of the country I don't know how many we're going to get to uh, listen to our podcast and, uh, and- Want more, but uh, there's so much more. There's so much more to learn. Uh, so many more events, and uh, a lot that folks can learn from. Uh, Michael, you're a you're a, you're a hero. You're my hero. I'm, I'm glad to call you a friend. Uh, I like it when I, I, I hear a text from you, or you hear a text from me, and the first words are "Hey stranger, hey stranger." <laughs> Let's not be strangers so much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if there's anything we can do, uh, I really like to maybe even start that. Uh, we'll we'll come back to that uh, family support. You know, that I think it's really at our age i really see the uh, the importance of it um just to help that next generation i don't believe sometimes they're as strong possibly as uh, as what uh, what's turning the century now uh, just because i see the numbers going up so if the numbers are going up are they not able to to deal with that i mean we're losing more guys by suicide than on the job yep. and that's not right and they're doing it in the stations they're doing it in the firehouse um so so it's a lot to be reckoned with, and so maybe we could talk about later. But, uh, sir, I salute you for your response to the Pentagon attacks at uh, and uh, September the eleventh, two thousand and one. And I'll share uh, a tear, a prayer, and, and even a cold beer with you on uh, on Saturday as we both reminisce our uh, our call out. I was headed to the post office with my wife. I looked at her. She said, well, "What do you want to do? Go inside and pack and leave." And I said, "No, let's just go to the post office. I'll come back and pack and leave because I'm not going to be home for a while." I was kind of glad that I got to do that saw my two kids on the way out of high school and uh, uh, two boys joined the military shortly after. We see how many sons and daughters, husbands and wives joined the military mm-hmm. uh, to continue our actions of trying to rescue, search, save, and recover those victims. They wanted to go out and make sure that it wasn't going to happen again and that they were going to make somebody pay the price for what had been done.
2: And they had our back, you know, just like those pilots, you know, for the next, you know, 20 years, making sure this didn't happen again. So hopefully yeah. least see, but you know, God love everybody that went into it, you know, yeah. to, you know, and sacrificed so much doing that too. I mean, we were there for, you know, weeks. I'll just say weeks, you know, yeah. not years. Yeah. And true. uh the risk, the risk we took on, we knew what we were taking on. And uh
1: yeah, they they definitely did more. Yeah. So yeah. Michael, thank you. You have a wonderful night and uh can't wait to uh, have a cold beer with you again. Definitely. And uh <laughs> either up there or down here. Bring you down to South Florida or I'll head up to McGuard. County, so we'll we'll see each other soon. All right. Thank you, brother. You have a thanks great for, night. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thank you for being my first guest on Solid Responder, and uh, I hope a lot of folks uh, tune in to listen to Mike and, uh, and his uh, adventures and stories uh, of the disasters that, uh, kind of Pentagon attacks of September the eleventh, two thousand one. Good night, everybody.